0: For those who trust in God, in the pain of sorrow there is consolation. In the face of despair, there is hope. In the midst of death, there is life. Yet for those who struggle with the inability to conceive, who know the pain of losing a child before birth, or who have faced their infant's death at the time of birth, know that the season of mourning is often held inside, hidden and unseen. But God does not abandon us. On the other side of loss, an incredible story of resilience emerges. Death is never the whole story. The hope of new life persists. Of Womb and Tomb, Prayer in Time of Infertility, Miscarriage, and Stillbirth is a resource for individuals, couples, and parish communities who wish to accompany those on their grief journey. Filled with stories, prayers, scripture, poems, and rituals, this book and accompanying music CD serves as a guide in creating prayer opportunities in a variety of settings. Visit GIA Publications today to order your copy. Together, let us bear witness to the Christian mystery that new life is born of the womb and of the tomb.
1: Welcome back, Open Your Hymnal listeners. My name is Zach Stahowski. And I am Matt Reichert. And we're happy to have you back with us.
0: We are really glad that you have joined us today for our special Easter Vigil episode. We are pleased to bring back to you a conversation from 2018 with
1: Gary Daigle and Rory Cooney. So please, open your hymnal to Covenant Hymn.
2: Wherever you go, I will follow.
3: I'm Rory Cooney. Never Hi, I'm Gary
2: Daigle.
4: So the whole thing was Gary's idea. We um, we did the album Safety Harbor in 1989. And we'd had a couple of songs in there that we collaborated on. And so Um, we decided to start working on this new record, probably in 91 or so. And Gary gave me, it could have been sooner than that now I'm thinking about it. He gave me on a scrap of manuscript paper. um, The full hymn. Yeah, the the tune, right? So just written out. And what he said to me was that, write words for this. And he says, "I, I think it would be good to do something with the Ruth text, you know, wherever you go, I will follow. And I says, uh, okay, okay, that's good. So I'll do that. And, and then,
3: uh, I think I may have mentioned to think about the catechumenate, but I can't remember if that was afterwards or what, but I don't remember either. I'm making most of this up as I go along. So. <laughs> <laughs> you think I'm joking. <laughs> It, the thing that's true is about the, the sh- single sheet of manuscript paper that had stayed in his suitcase for over a year.
4: Well, not that I never looked at it. It's just that, you know how it is, if, if you don't write the tune... I ne- By the way, I never work that way. I mean, when I'm by myself, unless I'm working with the tune pre-existing. I never start with the melody. I always start with the text, and then I figure out a melody to go with it. So it wasn't particularly easy for me to go mm-hmm. this way. And, you know, to be honest with you, like the melody just didn't hit me. It might have had chords on it or something, but maybe the way I was playing it, it just never struck me. And so really I took it out a couple times and finally he just got tired of nagging me about it. And so we just made a plan. And at least once, maybe twice, we went up to Northern Arizona uh, to a house that some relatives had.
3: This was in between Safety Harbor and Vision. Because I had I had backlogged a, a number of pieces of music to, to do a, a collection of my own, which ended up being Praise the Maker's Love. Right,
4: that's true. That was yeah. So
3: there were a number of unfinished pieces that I was that we were talking about collaborating on. So he had been, taken a trip to Northern Arizona to work on a, some on pieces on vision stuff. Yeah. And so he said, "Well, let's do the same thing, and we can finish up the pieces that." I had been working on. So we stowed away into this cabin for three or four days.
4: Only taking time off to go see uh, Sharon Stone in uh, <laughs> some movie that came out then. The one about the uh, basic Michael instinct. Douglas, yeah, Basic Instinct, yeah. But other than that, it was very religious.
3: <laughs> so we would we would give in the morning, have coffee, and kind of talk about the the things that we might work on during the course of the day and I just remember Rory with his yellow pad, legal pad, sketching texts out. So we were both sort of working on arrangements that I was sort of brought my computer with me, was working on Finale and he was with the yellow pad writing texts. And the particular song I just started working through the arrangement of it originally it was four stanzas long this is how i remember it and as as i was writing the arrangement i got about three stanzas into it and decided to do this sort of alternate harmonization just for some variety and as i was working on it rory i remember him saying how would you feel about maybe making this five stanzas i got an idea for something i don't remember the. And it turned out to be the verse wherever I die, ever you die, I will be there, just because of the sort of harmonic value of the, the stanza. So it ended up being a five-stanza piece. So I can always write more verses. That's what I remember about writing the piece. Yeah. The first version was more of a choral thing, and it wasn't until after the the piece sort of had some use in community, because we had talked about, at least one of my thoughts in my mind was this might be a piece of music that we'd sing, the community might sing to the newly initiated for the Easter Vigil. But it turns out that people started using it for a lot of different liturgies. And so as the song had its life as a published piece, people started using it for weddings. And so we ended up re-recording it just a simpler version as a duet on vision.
4: Yeah, I remember that what you know, what basically we did, we were still up in uh, Prescott, Arizona and um I think we just at the end of when we kind of had this whole song together, we called up Donna. <laughs> we called Terry on the phone and sang it to her. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like it was one of those one of those things and um anyway, that I would just say that that's true. The biggest surprise to us really was um kind of the way that it developed, how little actually it gets used in, uh, in initiation rituals, but most of, mostly we hear about it being used in weddings and funerals, so. And I don't care about that, that's, that's awesome.
0: Gary and Rory just outlined a whole bunch of different things that, that I want to pick up on and we can talk about. Um, Zach, I, I first want to get your your thoughts about the fact that the music for this song was written before the text. And as as they mentioned, that's not typically part of the process. But the way that this fits together is so beautiful. I found that surprising. And, and I'd like to hear your reaction to that.
1: It totally floored me. I mean, I think. Looking back on past episodes, there have been a couple, what you would call maybe uh, open-your-hymnal bombshells. For us to find out that the music came first in Covenant Hymn was a total shock to me. Because just the structure of the text with the way that Rory uh, structures the rhyme, where the emphasis is, how the phrases work. um, In a million years, I would never have said that I thought that the the music came first. And so just goes to show like, you know, the craft that goes into uh, the construction of melody on Gary's part, just knowing where to allow for space, how to shape phrase. Um, And it speaks to the collaborative nature
3: of what Rory and Gary uh, were able to produce here. I know I've got the original manuscript somewhere I think I jotted down the first just wherever you go I will follow or just sort of wrote that around the beginning of it and that's all that the page had. It was just sort of the hook line. But I did, I purposely didn't go any further because I don't write lyrics. And secondly, I didn't want to impose anything further. That's what he
4: always does. He's very really he's non-directive. He he says I kind of think maybe like this, but then he doesn't really want to Because sometimes he doesn't have the tune in mind, you know. He just says you should write something about this, Um, but he doesn't want to like get in the way of where it might go. He just has an idea like that. So,
3: which is the total opposite of the Damians that collaboration, which was there was more of a structure that was imposed. But the great part about it was is the collaboration. The process with Rory is the surprise of what happens with the lyric. So you don't want to impose too much melodically because of the very thing, the artistry of his writing leads the music in maybe in a totally different direction. But that melody covenant hymn had a had a structure from beginning to end as I remember
4: mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It was a hymn that it was it was those are fairly easy to write. I mean
3: I guess I was just fortunate that that the meter of the, and the melody laid so well for the poetry because it could have been very well that he had handed me a, got an idea for the stanza and said, here's the direction I'm going. I think it works better. Is there a way for you to adjust the melodic material? So I would have gone back and said, okay, let me adjust it so it works with the text. So You
1: didn't have to do any of that? no reworking
4: of the, the original it's, tune? No, it's, it's very simple. I mean, when you, any tune, uh, how can I say this? That's why it happens so often, that tunes are written in a certain way so that um, so that words fit them easier, right? I mean, that's I think that's why that happens.
0: It should come as no surprise that the text for many, or the the preponderance of our liturgical music, is based in scripture. Uh, this song, for example, you know, the first line comes from the Book of Ruth. Many of the songs we've talked about, if not most of the songs we've talked about, have been scripturally based. One of the things I find interesting is is the difference between the compositions that set out to paraphrase or to um, to put into the text the exact scripture passage, and other examples of songs like this one that are inspired by or based on a particular line of scripture but then expound on that further than what the passage might suggest
1: yeah like in in this text rory sets um a paraphrase of ruth one but in addition to that through the the next four verses that come after verse one he really unpacks all of the meaning that maybe could be derived from what's going on in that first chapter of Ruth.
4: Yeah, so um, it, it's kind of a love song. In some ways, I think of it as, uh, um, you know, the idea of covenant. There's different ways of expressing it. But generally, the, this is always about, you know, God's covenant with us and then our best covenants Imitate that they're they they're sort of shadows of what uh, of what God does for us. Um, so wherever you go, I will follow. Wherever you live is my home. You know, though Eden be lost to the past, mountains before us. You know, that's that's always God's presence with people. And and then you know we kind of get the idea as we go through life. We do the best we can uh, to stick with each other. Um, the, you know the second verse kind of echoes that it's kind of more I would say it's a little bit more of the the more the marriage imagery with Abram and Sarah in it um, uh, you know a few life lessons verse three is about how things can go wrong and uh, and you know we try to come back from it um, as we talked about already verse four is about solidarity even, and especially in uh, times of death, and then, whatever verse five is like, whatever happens, uh, the horizon shines clear. What's possible gleams like a city.
0: You know, in a second, we're going to hear Gary and Rory talking about Rory's text as having a homiletic quality or a catechetical quality, and and I really appreciate that. I know I know there are a variety of schools of thought when it comes to liturgical music texts when it comes to setting scripture. Um, if if any of our listeners have been listening to, to our other podcast, the Ministry Monday podcast, one of our recent episodes featured a conversation about chant and uh, Father Columba Kelly at St. Meinrids. And one of the things I appreciate about his view of chant it basically being sung speech and not being metered is that you can really faithfully set scripture so father columba refers to chant as drinking god straight um meaning you you have this you know this unadulterated setting of scripture text that you sing but i think in in cases like this you know when you look at rory's text where it really has that homiletic quality i mean i i don't feel that this is ad- adulterated in any way i understand it's not scripture but but i can't help but think in terms of what he's trying to convey that this is drinking god straight too
1: no i think you're exactly right it it helps me to unpack to kind of deconstruct what's going on there and you know it's one thing as a music director when you're programming music for for sunday liturgy you know and you do for instance like It's it's the week where we hear the the Isaiah reading, and then you know we faithfully plug in "Here I Am, Lord," and we're basically just this is no discredit to that song, but we're singing the words we just heard said in scripture, you know, more or less, Um, as opposed to like if you wanted to do uh, the servant song. Will you let me be my servant? Let me be as Christ to you. Where now you're taking it a step further of like, what does answering the call mean? Um, and I think a lot of the great hymnody uh, does that. You know, just thinking beyond Rory, like the 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 text of Dolores Duffner, Mary Louise Bringle, Adam Tice, a lot of these other uh, text writers that we're seeing, they're taking the scripture, but they're they're giving a le- giving us a lens. Um, through which to to view them and to connect with them. Aside from
4: psalm settings, I generally don't set out to do scriptural paraphrases. But, I mean, I think what happens is, I mean, that I've been influenced by having, um, you know, prayed and worshipped with the uh, lectionary for so long that that's kind of the, I mean, for better or for worse, you know, uh, scripture is kind of the, at least the scripture we get in the lectionary, is kind of the uh, filter that I see the world through. I mean, I kind of interpret my life through that. And actually, that's not as boring as it sounds because my um, interpretation and the way that I hear scripture changes all the time. You know, I guess that I feel like most of my writing is a little, what well, I guess I would call it in a sense... Um, I mean, I think it's liturgical primarily, but I think also it's a little bit catechetical. Or, or or like I I guess a different word would be um homiletic. You know, I I I actually am trying to, you know, lead people kind of through the text to a different place. And I think that's because I like see everything now, I think, through the lens of conversion, through the lens of Jesus' preaching about the kingdom of God. And so, in a, there's a sense in which I see Advent is about that. I see Christmas is about that. I see Lent is about that. So, whenever I'm writing anything, kind of what comes through there is, look, you know, it's pretty simple. You make a choice. You know, it's either, you, you can only, as Dylan's song says, right, you got to serve somebody. And there's really, there's really only two choices, you know, there's, everything that wants you to pay attention to it and distract you and pull you away from other people or there's the reign of god which is to say but in order to get it's it's close but in order to get to it we have to like just turn away from everything else and go in a different direction and i see every really i see everything through that lens now and so you know whenever a some new song idea comes out that eventually finds its way in but it's not it's not really my idea it's just me trying to translate you know everything that I've heard in the lectionary and in what I've read and studied and so forth for so many years trying to interpret reality through that through that lens that's my I guess that's what I do I, so I wouldn't say it's 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 definitely It's influenced, it's like saturated with Scripture, but it's not really, um, I'm not really concerned about, you know, making every phrase, uh, you know, proof texting it or something.
3: I would say it's, it's very different from the paraphrasing of the early Jesuits and even the Damians for that matter. You find yourself as a person in the assembly singing the images that you hear proclaimed, not a paraphrase of it, but all those lines that you've heard come out of the mouth of a proclaimer, you find yourself praying yourself as a person in the assembly, either to one another or addressing God, depending on the, the direction of the text. But you find yourself going, oh my goodness, I've proclaimed that text before or read that text before, but it's in a different context of the scripture piece itself which is i think what you one of the things you're saying about the homiletic value it's not just repeating the words of the text but it's been broken open
4: i have a song called i am for you
3: and i'm i'm just going to tell you this because
4: it strikes me as as uh connected to this in a um an anal- in an analogous way because really well, you know what I was, what I say when I'm when I'm writing is I'm writing out of the matrix of my experience um, through the lens of my understanding of scripture, especially as it comes to us in the lectionary. That's like three deep layers of stuff, right? But you know, when you sing it or play it or whatever, you're interpreting it through all those layers of your experience, and you don't have any of mine. You all we have in common really are the words, and really. When I say God and you say God, we really mean two different things. There are some similarities, but they're totally different. So, so this song, I Am For You, was written for a conference, and it was in Hawaii, okay? So now we're at a completely different culture so now you're talking about people who are interpreting the same scriptures that I'm interpreting but through their own the their lens you know through a through a lens of a much more recent and personal experience maybe even just a generation old of uh deliverance slavery and freedom and so forth so so I write the song I am for you and I have this like whole theological construct around it you know about and I tell everybody, and this is true, that, you know, I got the idea out of it from a footnote in the Jerusalem Bible, and and how it starts off is, you know, as the kind of revelation of God in Exodus uh, that name Yahweh means one of the ways it's interpreted is who I am, I am for you. The second verse is Mary saying in the New Testament, Uh, let it be done to me according to your word and the third verse is jesus saying i am for you to the end i'm with you always and then the fourth verse is the church saying um uh we are anointed servants of god and so forth i am for you um, yeah and then the the last verse is about you know again jumping into the future kind of thing but when the when at the conference liturgy, the priest preached on the, I can't even remember what the reading was now, but he used the song and he interpreted the song, the woman, small as a star, for him was Queen Liliuokalani. And he interpreted the whole idea through her sacrifice, you know, at the time of the American invasion of the islands during their uh, monarchy and how she went to prison and um and abdicated so that her people would not be killed by the by the Americans right um I would never in a hundred thousand years have ever thought that there was any connection there and yet for him it was not only it was not only natural it's as though it was almost like how could how was I so stupid as it never occurred to me, you know what I mean? It was, that's how it felt, because now it's, it's his matrix and he's talking out of that, but now he's using my something, you know, I don't want, I even don't want to use the word creation, to describe his reality, and in a way that was just like, you know, we were just, it was breathtaking, it was amazing. And that's, I think that's what happens because, you know, it's the same word, it's the same God, it's just that we keep changing, you know, so.
0: For the next part of our conversation, we're joined by our friend, Diana McAlenthal. Diana is an expert in the RCIA. And as we know from what Gary and Rory shared with us earlier, this song has its roots in initiation and in the Easter Vigil. And so we spoke to Diana about the RCIA and about this concept of covenant in the ritual action that happens at the Easter Vigil. Here's our conversation with Diana.
5: In the RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults, the text there at paragraph 231 actually talks Specifically about a suitable song being sung by the congregation between the celebration of baptism and confirmation. So uh, your Easter Vigil will vary because of uh, your logistics and how many elect you have and all, all of the other um, details that go into that. But in one instance where we were celebrating Easter Vigil, we had many people to baptize. So once they were ready to be welcomed back into the church, having dried off from their baptism, they entered through the back door, the, the main door of the church, and we would sing a song during that time as they were, in a sense, received into the order of the faithful, having been robed in the white garment, um I think at that one that one Easter vigil, we even invited them to uh, share and embrace with people as they came down the aisle back into, into the sanctuary, and so that could be a perfect time before the, uh, their confirmation to sing uh, a few verses of this song, and uh, if I had thought about it, I probably would have done this song in particular. But uh, we should uh, really take a look at these options where ritual music is invited and recommended uh, during the Easter Vigil to help with those transitions and to bring out the meaning of what we have just celebrated with these uh, now-baptized brothers and sisters.
0: Now, Rory spoke a little bit about covenant in you know, it's it's various forms. Both we, I think, usually we think of covenant. You know, in an Old Testament image between people and God, um, mm-hmm. but but also within this context of RCIA, covenant is understood in a communal level also. And I'm wondering if you'd share a few thoughts with us about that.
5: Yeah, all the baptized are called to evangelize, to spread the gospel, to draw people to Christ, and uh, that is everyone's mission, and uh, the RCIA is the way the Catholic Church does that in a systematic, uh, formal way. Uh, and so when we say that people are uniting with, uh, with the Church, they're really uniting with Christ. And so in the sense of covenant, when Christ makes a covenant, when, when God makes a covenant with God's people... Uh, we are being initiated into that people, into that body. And just like we can't get rid of any part of our body, we are brought into a covenant with one another through Christ. So uh, when we think of RCIA, we really need to think of these people are being initiated into our body, into our body of Christ, and we are... Uh, promising ourselves to them just as they are promising themselves to follow Christ. In the entire process of the RCI, from the very, very beginning of the initiation process, that sense of promising and covenant comes out where, in the rite of acceptance, it's the, the, the beginning of the ritual there is an exchange and a reception of intention. Just as you might say uh, in a wedding, there is the receiving of the consent and the exchanging of vows. There, at the beginning of the process, the, the person who is wanting to follow the way of the Gospel publicly declares their intention to do so. And the people of God, represented by the local parish, receives that intention and in turn offers their promise to help them find and follow Christ. So from the very beginning, we are covenanting ourselves to one another. Um, and uh, formally and legally, canonically, at the end of the rite of acceptance, these catechumens are considered members of the household of God. We find that in, um, in the RCI itself, and it comes directly from the Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, where we say the catechumens now belong to God's people. They are part of our household and have rights and responsibilities to uh, the body of Christ, and we have rights and responsibilities to them. The RCIA says that uh, once they are catechumens, we embrace them uh, with a mother's love and we nourish them with the Word of God and sustain them with the rights and so we are we can't uh, give them back no matter uh, how much we, we might want to they belong to us and we belong to them
0: that's beautiful. I mean, there, there's there's so much depth and richness, of course, to to all of these rites, and and it's it's so helpful to to hear a reminder of, of this and and to put this into context like you have. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. You're welcome. You can find out more information about Diana in the show notes for this episode on our website, openyourhymnal.com. And we hope that as you approach the Easter Vigil this season, if you know of anyone who's joining the church or currently is undergoing the process of RCIA, that you consider sharing this episode with them as a part of their faith journey.
1: So in looking at past episodes, this is the first song that we've done that actually have uh, two people in the byline that um, we're also able to interview both of them. Um, a lot of our composers uh, have talked about working in collaboration with other composers. You think about Paul Inwood working with the Collegeville composers or with the Solitaire group, Dan Schuette and the Jesuits, of course, and then even Gary talking about uh, his work with the Damians. But it was really interesting to finally have a complete uh, collaboration in the room with us. And uh, they were able to discuss like what their work uh, together has meant, and how it has formed them, and how it has shaped uh, the way that they write.
0: And not just shape the way that they write, but also shape the way that they view, the way they relate to one another, what informs their ministry, and really what informs the community that we all belong to. It's it's. It occurs to me that it really is this sense of covenant that Diana spoke about in discussing the Easter Vigil and the ritual action that happens when we welcome people into the church. It's the same way that Gary and Rory speak about their relationship with one another, and also the blessing that collaboration provides.
4: I think Gary is just, in, for me at least, this would be my take on it. Gary is such a really good musician, musician, and he knows. His limitations, but you know outside of those limitations he's like really really good. I'm like eternally grateful for our collaboration just because it's not just about writing it's about a kind of making music together and he's like a, he's like a better musician than I ever dreamed of being in every possible way um, and that's just made our work better because that's... you know I know my limitations too. <laughs>
3: Collaboration has been at the heart of my musical life from the very beginning in terms of, certainly in terms of pastoral music. My experience with the Damians was the first writing that I did. I've never started off as a writer by myself. It's always been with other people. So much of it for me is really how this is linked to my what I believe in terms of my faith, that sort of letting go of what the expectation of what the finished process might be has proved itself to be at least in important. It's a, it's a life lesson in community. So I can't be my fullest self without other people. I mean, it's just talking about relationship-wise and friendship-wise and community-wise. So, so writing is more a reflection of community life than it is my own sort of muse. And that's what I've learned,
4: and that's what he teaches. One of the like the deepest things that I've ever learned about um, this process, he said for the earliest times of us working together, and I know he's not said this just to me, but I know that I was listening, is that um do what you're supposed to do, and everything else follows. In other words, so like for us, for the way that I translated that is, I like to write songs, but that's not my life. You know, my life is being a pastoral musician, trying to listen to what people need, what they what they sing, try to supply that from all the whatever is in my memory and whatever I dig up. You know, pulling all that together, and then you know, you just you just do your work, and what you know, all of the songwriting stuff and all that flows out of the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And really, it makes you stop wanting what you don't have and what you're not good at if you believe that you're doing the thing you're supposed to do and that whatever else you're supposed to do, you're going to be led there. And that's what Gary taught me, among many other things, you know, so. And I think that... Well, this
3: this is what collaboration has taught us. It's just a life lesson, finding people who of like mind who unselfishly give their gifts to the process of creativity and create and play things that you never thought of. Oh boy,
4: ain't that the truth.
3: I mean, you can sit and think in your own experience of people that you've been involved with because there's, there's something outside of yourself that happens if you're willing to let it, to try it. And it's the same thing doing pastoral ministry. You have who you have. You have to love the people that you work with. Do everything you can to make them rise up and be whatever kind of musician they can be. That sounds like a commercial, sorry. But that's what I've learned. That's really the, the gist of the whole collaboration. I can't imagine doing it any other way. You have to sort of let go and believe in the people that you're, you're working with.
1: And now, here is a recording of Covenant Hymn in its entirety.
2: Wherever you go, I will follow. Wherever you live, is my home. Though days be of blessing or sorrow, though house be of canvas or stone. Though and be lost to the past, though mountain cloud the future together. i the
1: We'll be right back after a
6: word from one of our sponsors. Looking for more psalm options? Tired of your current mass setting? Wish you had access to new music but can't afford enough copies? Introducing Simply Liturgical Music, an innovative new online resource geared towards supplementing your current music repertoire. Simply Liturgical Music is a cost-effective collection of original psalms, hymns, and mass settings created by a network of composers who work in the trenches just like you. This entire resource is accessible for one annual fee. Just download, print, or share digitally and sing. Make as many copies as you need with no copyright guilt. See why parishes, schools, and college campuses all over the country have turned to Simply Liturgical Music to supplement their hymnals and enhance their worship experience without breaking their budgets. For more information, please visit slmusic.org. That's slmusic.org. Simply liturgical music
0: and now it is time for the open your hymnal playlist this is the part of our show where we are able to share with you additional music drawn from the themes in today's conversation and since this is an easter vigil episode this is an easter vigil themed playlist so zach why don't you kick us off with your first choice
1: the notion of covenant is so intimately tied with the idea of baptism so for my next pick i chose lori true's come to the water since we drink
7: of one spirit, we are strangers no more.
1: I guess I'm in an Easter Vigil kind of mood because uh, following this theme of covenant, baptism, Christian initiation, I wanted to include a setting of the Litany of the Saints. And I think like many people, my favorite setting is John Becker's. So this is his Litany of the Saints.
7: Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy have mercy Lord have mercy Lord have mercy Holy Mary mother of God Of India, Pray for Saint Lawrence Pray for Saint Saint Perpetua, Saint Felicity, Pray for Saint Agnes, Pray for Saint Gregory, Pray for Saint Augustine.
0: Vigil has always been just one of my absolute favorite celebrations and in my home parish we do all of the readings and all of the psalms and we really pull out all the stops and my favorite sung response is the Exodus Canticle from Exodus 15. This is a wonderful setting of that text from Jeanette Sullivan Whitaker, To God Be Praise and Glory.
8: I sing to God, triumphant is he, To God be praise and glory. The horse and chariot he cast into the sea. To God be praise and glory. My strength and courage come from the Lord.
2: Must die.
0: Next pick I'm going to choose something completely different this is another piece um, drawn from the readings and psalmody of the Easter Vigil this is a setting of the text from Psalm 42 this is from Palestrina Sicut Chervus Thank you for listening to Open Your Hymnal. And special thanks to Rory Cooney, Gary Dago, and Diana McElintill for speaking with us. Covenant Hymn is published by GIA Publications. The recording you heard was released by GIA on the album Vision.
1: For more information about this song, the other songs you heard, links to purchase this music, and additional resources can be found at our website, OpenYourHymnal.com. Production assistance and support for this episode was provided by GIA, and the National Association of Pastoral Musicians.
0: Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes and Google Play.
1: For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Zach Stahowski.
0: And I'm Matt
1: Reichert. Thanks for listening.